And those passing by were hurling abuses at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in this three days, save yourself, you foolish man. If you're the son of God, come down off the cross. He could have come down. He could have called legions of angels. But he hung there, pierced through for your iniquities and for mine. He had you on his mind as he hung there. And he remained there and he suffered a horrendous death and crucifixion. So that you might have life and have life abundantly that you might have a passion for worship a passion for God and that you might submit to the power of Christ we would like to welcome you to getting in the word with Pastor Stuart Guthrie Pastor Stuart is the teaching pastor of Family Bible Fellowship in Early Branch South Carolina and he has been teaching through a series on the book of John we hope that you will join us as we begin getting in the word Here is Pastor Stewart. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been working through the book of John, but we've taken some time off from that because of Christmas uh, and some other things. But we're going to jump back into the book of John. And as I prepared my 2019 preaching schedule, verse by verse, it looks like by the time we reach 2020, 20, Lord willing, that happens or, or Christ were to return, I, I pray that I don't make it to chapter 11, that Jesus returns before then. But we should make it to John chapter 11. So a lot of, of preaching this year in the book of John, and I'm excited about that because John is an excellent book and one that is transforming to our lives. And so I pray that uh, you will be encouraged this year. And so we've been working through the book of John, and we have approached chapter 2. And so I kind of want to bring you up to speed, assuming that you have not been here. And we've seen that Jesus in chapter 2 was invited to a wedding celebration. His mother's there, both Jesus and his disciples approach and come. And there at that wedding feast, there is a problem that arises. Culturally, a devastating problem, one that was potentially detrimental to the wedding party. Simply enough, the wedding host had run out of wine. It's not a huge, huge thing in our culture, but I like to compare it to the Guthrie residence running out of Heinz ketchup. We have a problem, Houston, if we run out of ketchup. These folks had run out of wine. It was a serious problem. And Jesus, I mean, Jesus' mom tells Jesus, hey, they've run out of wine. And Jesus then says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Not any disrespect in the terms, but makes it clear that his time has yet not come. But her faith and her son sets up the conversation with mom and the servants. And she says to them by faith, do whatever he says to do. So Jesus begins the instructions as he sees those pots over there and says, fill those water pots 
to the rim. Don't leave any room for anything to be added because I'm about to do something that I don't want anybody else to potentially get the credit for. And so they fill the six water pots to the brim. And then Jesus turns the substance, the water, to wine. We've just witnessed in chapter 2 the first miracle in the first 12 chapters of John. The servants are amazed. The disciples are astounded. And the text says that they believed. And Jesus always, we read about miracles with a message. The miracles were always about salvation. Not about proof, but about salvation. And after those 11 verses, the passage ends with this short verse in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, After this they went down to Capernaum, him and his mother and his brother and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So what we've just witnessed is the power of Christ. The deity of Christ has been revealed because nobody can turn water to wine except the Lord. And so that's the first miracle in the first 12 chapters, the, the first half of the book, the book of signs, you could call it. And so Jesus is going to continue to make himself known before the world, but he's going to do it under his methodology, the way he sees fit. And only in his timing will he make himself known. And so we come to our portion of the Scripture today and we see that Christ is beginning to reveal Himself to the world. His public ministry. Through His actions, through His signs, and through His wonders, and no less as Christ in our text today revealed Himself in amazing and in powerful ways. And so if you will, let's turn there to the passage that was read, John chapter 2. 13 to 25, there are a few things that I want us to see in our text today. Three simple points that I want you to take home with you. And first, that is, we see the passion of Christ. Secondly, we see the power of Christ. And thirdly, we see the perception of Christ. And as I was reading over my text, sitting in the pew, I think there should be at another one. We see the persistence of Christ. I don't know if I'll get there, but I may. But let's begin by looking At point number one, we see the passion of Christ. Notice he says here in verse 13, The Passover of the Jews was near. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, uh, the, the direction going up to Jerusalem because of the mountain terrains, and he's going uphill to Jerusalem. It's time for the Passover festival. This Passover celebration took place on the 14th day of the lunar month, Nisan, a full moon at the end of March, the beginning of April. It honored uh, the remembrance of the night when the death angel passed over there in Exodus, when the homes that were covered by blood, the death angel passed over, and all that had the blood of the pure spotless lamb was saved. In all of the dismay and the horror that followed, the Jews escaped from Egypt in Exodus 12. 
That's what the Passover celebration was a reminder of. Listen, think about this for a minute. Because what we see happening right here is amazing. It's baffling. You have the Son of God, right? The promised Messiah. The example of what we see in Exodus as the pure, spotless Passover lamb, which blood was shed to cover that would save everyone who had it on the doorpost. And what we see in John is that Jesus Christ, the one in whom Exodus was pointing to, is going to the very celebration. That's exciting. That's Awesome. And notice the first passion that we see Christ portray. That is, Christ has a passion for worship. Last week, David spoke about worship. He gave examples of worship. He gave reasons why we should worship. And he finished as he gave the way to worship. All of those as we approach with an underlying question this morning, do we worship Christ? The one of whom the Passover celebration celebrates. The Messiah. And are we passionate about worship? Because I want you to know that Christ had a passion for worship. If anybody could miss the Passover celebration, it would be Jesus. But he doesn't. And as I'm studying this text, something screams out to me at this passage that I've never thought of before. And that is the fact of why Jesus, God in flesh, is there at the Passover. Why is it he's there? And I believe it's because someone instilled it into him. Faithful, consistent worship throughout his whole life. He learned the importance in the passage of worship from his mother and his father. If you remember in there in Luke chapter 2, we learn of the story where Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's left behind. But I wonder how many times I've missed the fact that it was his parents that instilled into him a passion for worship. He says here in verse 41 of Luke chapter 2, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year. The feast of the Passovers. And when he became 12, they, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. They'd made this trip together. Entire life. Listen, if you as parents do not have a, a passion... For worship. 
Do not expect your children to have a passion for worship. Do not expect them to. Because you will instill into them the men and the women that you want them to be. They will act as you act. They will dress as you dress. They will drink what you drink. They will smoke what you smoke. Now, there are circumstances where God is obviously sovereign over our lives, but do not negate the fact of the impact a mother and a father has in the life of their children. And we see that here. God in His grace can and has done and uses children with faithless parents to do great things. But more so than not, your children will be no more passionate about church, about worship, and the things of God than you. No pressure. <laughs> but challenges us, doesn't it? As parents, to know that for me it's seven. Seven children that God has entrusted in my care, that I'm responsible, that I will give an account for how I impact their lives with the sake of the gospel. And how much time will I pour into their lives? I can only pour into their lives. It's the Holy Spirit's job to change their hearts, right? I'm not God. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't save my children. But as I sit at a table and I look down at all those five boys and those two girls, I can invest my life into them and trust that the creator of the universe who sent his only son into the world to die for all of them will draw them to himself. And that they will have a passion and a desire for worship. God is ultimately in control. If you're not a parent, and you're a child of someone that has passion or lacks passion, one day you may be a parent. And God will bless you with children. Be reminded that Christ is a man of passion. He has a passion for worship. Jesus Christ had throughout his life been taught, had been shown, had been exposed to a passion of worship. And here, by way of example, by way of faithfulness, he is traveling to Jerusalem to worship at the Passover of the Jews, to celebrate. Now again, this isn't the first trip that Jesus has taken, the Passover celebration. But upon arrival there, something's changed. Something's different. As the people from other nations wanted to learn about God and even begin to worship the God of Israel, they would come to the temple because they were not Jewish. They were not allowed into certain parts of the temple. They weren't even allowed near the presence of God. Rather, they were only allowed into the access of what they call the court of the Gentiles. So this is the place designated for them to become acquainted with, to know and to to realize who God is. But instead, what you find is corruption, collusion, con artist. They had moved from the outer parts to the inner parts. And they had made the Father's house place of business 
and Jesus ain't happy. John chapter 2, verse 14, and it says, And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at the tables. Listen, not only here do we see Christ in his passion for worship, but we see Christ in his passion for the Father's house. One writer said it this way, The worshipers in Jesus' day, like many worshipers, in every age have become religious consumers seeking to be served as they were completely obsessed with their own agendas and comfort. Worship is about sacrifice. And many worshipers simply do not understand that fact. The court of the Gentiles was the outermost part of the court temple during the time of Jesus. No Gentile or no Jew could proceed any further into the temple areas. And even Roman citizenship did not protect a Gentile who had intruded into prohibited areas. It was an important place. They had taken the only place of their ability to possibly worship based upon the pre-Christ and had turned into what we find in Mark eleven seventeen when Jesus says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a, rob- a den of robbers? You see, Jesus not only had passion for worship, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, had a passion for God. He had a passion for God. These people had no concern, no reverence for God. And I believe we live in a culture and at a time when there is no reverence of God. We come into the house of the Lord. We stay up till 1 and 2 and 3 in the morning. We come here and we can't even stay awake. We're laid back. We're sleeping a lot of us right now. If you can't say amen, you got to say ouch. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. There ain't nobody sleeping. But, But we come into the house of the worship where we worship God lackadaisical many times. They were simply concerned about making a profit, lining their pockets on God's property. Cattle, the sheep, the dove, all these were used in the sacrificial system, in the worship of the, in the temple. The people coming from far away could buy these sacrificial elements. That was helpful, right? I mean, you wouldn't want to carry a sheep all the way. I mean, we watched the video on Christmas Eve. That's a long way to travel with a sheep. You could just buy one there. And and many times uh, they would split the cost and they would do it together. But they had moved from where they had used to sell them into the court of the Gentiles. Jesus had a passion for the Father, and he wasn't having it. And so we read, verse 15, And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple. Can you imagine that moment? The righteous anger? This is God in flesh! (laughs) No sin had ever entered into Christ. It's righteous anger. 
He drives him out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, turned over their tables, and those who were selling the doves, I love how it changes kind of, and those who are selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. That's probably because they're caged up. You know, you can imagine whipping a cage. It wouldn't make much sense. Get those birds out of here. No less passionate is he about God's house, even to these folks. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Christ had a passion. Christ had a reverence for God. And the temple was the place in which the glory of God dwelt. Instead of brokenness, repentance, instead of holy adoration and reverence for God, there was a noise of business unfolding rather than weeping and mourning over the sins of mankind. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't care about the opinions of what man, what they think or what they will think or what anyone else thinks. He just goes in and does his business. His passion for God should be encouraging for me and for you as we have the opportunity to as well have a passion for worship and a passion and reverence and an awe of God in his presence. His passion drove him to stop these people from making his father's house a place of business. It wasn't the selling that was the problem. It was the place. There's a place for everything, isn't there? The lack of respect for God and his holy temple. Now, I know that many people want to turn the church into the temple, but listen, there could be no more Wrong idea. God is not a God who dwells in the houses built by men. You are the temple of God. You are where God, the Holy Spirit, dwells. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we have a respect, a reverence in all of God? What is it that maybe you've led in your life What is it that you've led in your home that would bring dishonor to God? What things have we began to do that we know that God's Word says don't do it that way, but do it this way, but for the sake of peace among men, we do it the way that God says don't do it. Boy, you fill in the blanks for yourself. There are great opportunities for that in your life. And I'm not your judge. The Lord Jesus Christ is the righteous judge. All I'm doing is challenging you to think about where is it in your life that you have conformed and begin to allow stuff into the place in which the Holy Spirit is to dwell. What is it? We have let to the church where we worship that dishonors God. I don't want to get again all caught up on the place because Acts 7.48 says 
the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet said. Christ at the time had not yet gone to the cross. He had yet not ascended up to the right hand of the Father. And He has, though today and we again are the temple of God, where God dwells. You are the temple of God. And boy, don't we misuse that temple quite often. That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Listen real close. In that you are not your own. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you do not own your body. You are the temple in which God dwells. And when we misuse the temple and we do things that dishonor God with our eyes, with our lips, with our tongue, with our tummies, with our fingers, our hands, our whatever, all right, then we are misusing the temple in which is God's. You are the church. This building's not the church. It's where the church gathers. We as individuals are individually members of one another. That's what it says in Romans 12. And that's why he can say in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, right? As a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. If you were coming to Biscuits and Bible, you would know that verse because that's what we're memorizing. Jesus had a passion for God. Now it's time to personalize that. How about you? Do you have a passion for God? I mean, let's just pause the, the, the rotating earth that just spins in the daily mundane routine. Listen, you wake up. You know what I'm talking about. You wake up and you can't Oh, I got so much to do, right? It's like, I got to jump in the race, but where do I jump? Do I jump here? Do I jump here? I got to do this. I got to do that. Oh, if I do this and I'm going to... Stop for a moment. Stop for a moment. Breathe. How about you? Do you, do you, do you, do you have a desire to worship God? You have a desire to worship God. Because if you've ever had a fidget spinner, when you spin it, it just keeps going. Right? You kids know what I'm talking about, you fidget spinners. But listen, all it takes is one finger, right? And it stops. And in our lives, we need to stop. Just for a moment. And ask ourselves the question, do we have a passion for God? I'm not talking about coming to church. I'm not even talking about reading your Bible. Do you have a passion for God? Is He a passion for you? Is He a passion for your life? And I think many of us have placed God so far back That he's on the 10th row 
And we got to work our way all the way back to him before we ever reach him. And many times, listen, we don't ever get there. Because nine rows before him stops us. What have you led into your temple that would cause Christ to expound a holy, righteous anger in your life? He made these cords and he drives them out of the temple and they remember it says zeal for your house will consume me. Let me ask you this. Why would Christ have such a zeal for the house of God? It's because it's where God dwelt. Right? Why why do we put so much power on the white house? Because it's where the president resides. Right? Today he dwells in us, and we should have a zeal for God and for one another, to love one another, to honor one another. And many of the things that dishonor God is what we're doing is because it dishonors one another. Christ had a passion for God, and because of this, we see the passion of Christ. the worship, and for God. But not only do we see the passion of Christ, I want us to see, secondly, we see the power of Christ. Sorry, I didn't tell you you it was okay for you to have righteous anger. It just didn't go that way with it this time. But we see the power of Christ. All that has taken place here drives these people to one question. Think about this. I mean, Jesus came into the temple. You don't think this is powerful. Just go to Israel and see how holy these places are to these people. Makes you question what we're doing on this side. Boy, we, we just don't have a reverence for God. These people have a reverence for God and His place of worship. Right? So we see power grace. It draws them to this one question in verse 18. Then the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? As legal authorities, these Jews had every right to ask questions for the credentials of someone who would take such bold action within the temple complex. But I have to agree with John MacArthur on this one. Their motives are not pure. They have no desire to receive information by their questions. but rather they speak as a way to challenge the authority of Christ, like they always do. And listen, if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing. 
We'll challenge the authority of Christ in our lives. We'll challenge the sovereignty of God and we'll begin to question God. Why is my life this way? Why has this happened in my life? Why are you doing this? He is God. And His ways are always pure and righteous. And everything He does, or everything He allows, is covered by His grace. I just want to know, what, what authority do you have? Matthew 21, 23 to 24 says, When they entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to Him while He was teaching. Right? What they ask? By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? All they want to know is, do you have the authority and who gave you the authority? They refuse to submit, listen to the power of God. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Crown him Lord of all. That was the song I wanted for the very beginning song this morning. Because it brings the reality that Christ is all powerful. In control. They questioned and tested Jesus like they always did again and again and again. In Matthew 6, 1-4, remember they asked Jesus for a sign. The Pharisees, it says, and the Sadducees came up testing Jesus. And they asked him, show them a sign from heaven. Listen, this is so true still in our day. Everyone wants a sign from God. Like he hasn't already given one. Everybody wants to be super spiritual. To over-spiritualize everything so many times in our culture. Listen, God has given you His Word. He's given you everything pertaining to life. And to God. He needs not say one more thing. He, he needs not to. Because he's revealed everything to you. He can come back at any moment. He didn't have to prepare you any more than he's already prepared you. He didn't have to even warn you. He's already warned you right here. And he tells you, if you have not believed the gospel, when he returns, it will be too late. There's only two options, heavens or hell. Whichever one you want to go to is your choice. He's already paid the price. He's given you the ticket. All you have to do is take it, accept it, believe the gospel. The Bible says you shall be saved. Thus saith the Lord. Here's my prophecy coming out. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And then he says a sign will not be given it. Except the signs of Jonah. And he left them and went away. They wanted a sign, but they failed to see the very sign that was given to him of coming and cleansing the temple. As we see in Malachi 3, 1 to 3. Whatever the case, Jesus refused the request. 
Now make no mistakes, Jesus took great opportunity to argue with the Jews and, and to question them and to bumblefound them in their brains. But here he refuses to become an entertainer performing signs for their benefit. So how do we see his power here? Listen to what Christ says. Listen to how the king of the Jews responds to these men's question. Starting in verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? You ever watched ESPN that, come on, man. That's what they're thinking. Come on, man. Really? Three days? Dude, you crazy. Three days? But Jesus is thinking of something else, isn't he? Verse 21 says he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he raised it from the dead, his disciples remember that he said, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. The words of Jesus have power. It was over three years before the cross and the resurrection took place. and The words of Christ still change lives. Only God himself could make this claim. And so what we have here is Christ claiming deity. Of course, they missed his point altogether because they had not ears to hear. Just like many in our days do not have ears to hear. So they did as well and they missed the point. They missed the point here and they missed the point before Caiaphas in Matthew 26, 57 to 60, when it says those had seized Jesus, led away to Caiaphas, the high priest. And when the scribes and the elders were gathered together, but Peter was following from him from a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying uh, to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. They did not find any. Even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. He said, you destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. I just saw that standing here. Yeah. It was there. He said, don't miss that this is the predicted Christ, the Messiah, Right? which is still today living and thriving throughout the life of the believer. Sometimes I get in and I study and I just stand in my office and whoa, that thing's good, I love it. And I'm thinking, what, what? come on, man. If it was at Pilgrim Ford, they'd be saying, glory, hallelujah. Right? Because it's exciting, it's living, and it's active. Right? Man, this is exciting stuff. This powerful statement 
may have seemed foolish, but we have the whole story, don't we? We have seen it unfold and how much greater opportunity we have today to believe in the power of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They missed it before Caiaphas. They missed it at the cross where they hung Jesus on your behalf, in my behalf, that you might believe and be saved. Jesus doesn't want you to die and go to hell. He wants you to believe the gospel and be his child for eternity. Because you will live for eternity somewhere. But there's more going down than there's going up. There's more going down than there is going up. They missed it. They missed seeing the ability of Christ conquering death. As a matter of fact, they missed it and they mocked. Verse 38 says, At that time two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuses at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, you foolish man. If you're the Son of God, come down off the cross. He could have come down. He could have called legions of angels. But he hung there, pierced through for your iniquities and for mine. He had you on his mind as he hung there. And he remained there and he suffered a horrendous death of crucifixion. So that you might have life in that life abundantly, that you might have a passion for worship, a passion for God, and that you might submit to the power of Christ. God's Word is powerful. Can I ask you directly this morning, have you trusted in the One that is all-powerful? Or have you been like them? You see, he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that, and he said this. They believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. God's words are power. You have the book of life, and you have the way into salvation. And if you today place your faith in the all-sufficient, all-powerful, the one that was crucified, the one that was raised from the dead and is now alive forevermore, you too can be saved Because of the power of Christ. Listen, we see the passion of Christ. We see the power of Christ. But lastly, we see the perception of Christ. And so we've walked through the cleansing of the temple. We've seen Christ make bold statements in a statement that only God could claim. And now we are about to see some of the uh, divine attributes revealed through the ability of Christ's perception. He says in chapter 2, 23 to 25, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. If I had to do this sermon over again, I would say here we see the persistence of Christ. Even though they're questioning him, what's happening? People are still coming to faith. He's cleansed the temple. He's at the Passover. But people are still being saved. 
That's persistence. He's not going to let some false idolatry keep him from proclaiming the gospel message to these people. Neither should we. Neither should we. Christ has gone on, remained in the Passover celebration, and they did not arrest him. That's even more crazy. Right? Let me go to Israel right now and uh, go to the Wailing Wall and start running everybody out with, with cords and see what happens. Hmm. It wouldn't last long. But these people, they, they never arrested them. Which to me speaks to the fact that they know they're wrong for what they're doing. And Christ gets to work doing signs and winning souls. Jesus is such a great example to follow, and many did, but the text says, but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Listen, here's something for you all to just be reminded of. Jesus knows your heart. He knows what you did last week. He knows what you did last night. He knows what you did on the way here. He knows it all. You can't hide it from him. You can suppress it like David and you can try to cover it up and pile it up and pile it up. But just like Nathan, you are that man. Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus knows our passion. Jesus knows us. So why do we try to hide it from him? Jesus is as real as your mom and dad. If you were doing something wrong in the dark of night and your mom opened the door and you were kissing a boy or kissing a girl, whichever you want to call it, you'd stop, wouldn't you? Jesus has been there the whole time. But we like to hide Jesus, don't we? Suppress him so we can do and accomplish what we want to do when we know we're wrong. But Jesus knows it all. And even, this is what's really amazing, even Jesus knowing who we are and what we do, while yet we were sinners, Christ died for us. In spite of who we truly are, He still loves us. And He can still forgive us. But just remember this one thing, you will reap what you sow. You will not get figs from from an eggplant. If you plant sin, you will reap sin. So you must repent. He knew all these men. His perception, his ability to know the hearts of all men is a divine attribute. Because you can hide it from me, I can't see inside of your heart. And I can hide my sin from you because you can't see inside my heart. Unless you catch me in the act. I could pretend I'm all holy and... Blue coated up. The only reason I'm wearing this coat is because Josiah told me to wear a coat and he ain't even wearing his coat this morning. I'm burning up up here. But I can fool you. But you can't fool Christ. You can't fool Christ because he knows all. It's a divine attribute. Men, you can hide stuff from your wives. Wives, you can hide stuff from your men. You can hide stuff from your balls. You can hide just about anything if you cover your tracks well enough. But there is one that you can't hide anything from, and that's God. He knows before your little secret becomes public. He knows our hearts. 
the good, the bad, the ugly. He is not confused about what's authentic and what's unauthentic. No confusion on who is truly born again and who is not. And that's not my job today to tell you you're born again or not. All I'm telling you is this. I don't care what you think. If Jesus Christ is not the only way to salvation and you think you can work your way there or you can do something or you can give enough money or take care of the needy and the poor and you think that's going to the good is going to outweigh the bad let me tell you you got a bad thing coming at the end of the day when jesus comes back and christ is not your solution to salvation you will be found lacking but for all that have put their faith in jesus christ alone for their salvation the salvation of the death to bear on the resurrection of jesus christ to none of them will they be disappointed for all those that know christ and are saved by faith, can say, I, as he can say to us, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? More importantly, does he know you? As of a father, a child, this is the reality. Because Christ has passion, so we should have passion. Because Christ has power, we should rely on his power. Because Christ is persistent, so we should be persistent. Because Christ has a divine perception, we shouldn't try to hide from him what he already knows to be true. Rather, we should repent today believe the gospel because they did try to destroy the temple the body of Christ and he succeeded because in three days he raised it back up from the dead and conquered death the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ it's the power to save will you respond today because Jesus reveals power in deity let's pray We want to thank you for joining us on our program today. We pray that you were challenged, encouraged, and hope that you will stay connected with us for the weeks to come as Pastor Stewart walks us through the book of John. If you don't have a church home, Pastor Stewart would like to personally invite you to join their worship service at Family Bible Fellowship in Early Branch, South Carolina. They meet each week at 11 a.m. For more information about the church, visit them at familybiblefellowship.org. Thanks again for being with us, and have a great week.